Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar and PV Case. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. Thank you so much for lending your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got. Of course, that is your time. I know that you are here to grow your impact and your income, so let's get to it. Today's entrepreneur is Kevin Conroy, founder and CEO of Finite, where he is building a platform for investors to access institutional quality, sustainable investment strategies. He's the co-portfolio manager for Finite's public fund, S-O-L-R-X is the ticker, where he's primarily responsible for the origination and deployment of their fund capital. Kevin has a very interesting background from leaving JP Morgan, where he was an investment banker focused on corporate restructurings, to going and taking a chance on the solar startup world with our friend Eric White over at Dividend Finance, an early pioneer in residual solar financing. Today, we're going to dig into why Kevin believes that SolarX and Finite need to exist, how you can benefit from it as a retail investor and industry participant, where there are still missing pieces in the puzzle to deploy this capital out to more residential homes and even into the commercial solar space. If you like these kinds of conversations, my friend, I have great news for you. You're in the right place. You should subscribe to the show and you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this. Tactical, practical conversations on Tuesdays with subject matter experts and these longer form episodes on Thursdays where we get a look in the mind of appeal back behind the curtain, so to speak, of the entrepreneurial journey of founders truly on the front lines of the clean energy revolution, the energy transition. We've got more than 550 such stories in our catalog over at mysuncast.com. I hope that you'll go check those out. Of course, it should be accessible, most of those, inside whatever player you are using. Many of you are on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, I am sure. A special thanks to our mutual friend, Graham Richard, solar warrior for a long time now, who made the kind introduction to Kevin. Okay, get ready to tune up your skills, solar warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. As we speed towards decarbonizing our economy and our grid and think about the components required for energy transition, one invariably confronts the reality that the capital stack and how money is sort of deployed to these assets matters. And then ultimately how we can allow for a larger portion of humanity to invest in those assets matters. In lots of other verticals, there are examples both at a you know sort of Wall Street fund level and individual contributor investors level of ways to invest in asset asset classes for I'll say the common individual that is interested in their particular flavor of lifestyle investment choice. Ours, not just here on Suncast, but in our community in the renewable energy sector is focused around the energy transition and sustainability. And as a result, I like to be able to try and focus 
when I can, attention on entrepreneurs that are spending a lot of brain power and building a capacity for folks to invest in novel and interesting ways. One of those folks that you might have heard of in the last year, thanks to our friend Peter Kelly Detweiler, who wrote a story about it in Forbes, or another friend, Emily Kirsch at Powerhouse, who both invested and wrote a very elegant LinkedIn post, both of which we'll link to in today's show notes, is a company called Finite, the Finite Solar Fund, and the president of the Finite Solar Fund, or the company that runs it, Finite Corporation, a guy named Kevin Conroy, who manages the fund along with his co-manager. Today, we have a chance to dig into not just why this is the problem he is compelled to solve, but how he got here. Without further ado, Kevin, I'd love to welcome you to Suncast. It's great to see you again. Thanks, Nico. Happy to be here. I wish that it could have been better timed back when you were ready to make all of the announcements of, of closing your, your financing. But man, you've been on a tear in the last year. Congratulations on the most recent round of, of funding that you've raised. It's been, it must have been a, a very exciting 12 months for you. Yeah, it's been a busy 12 months of um, launching, building, launching, raising, and getting things to a point where uh, they are today. Well, folks may not be listening who are you know, bankers or fund managers. They may be looking at this thinking, how can I invest my money? Or they may just be trying to get smart enough to have an interesting conversation with folks uh, around, uh, around the dinner table or at a bar. So let's give a little bit of an entree for folks to what it is that you do. Could you describe the problem that you created Finite to solve? So our main purpose with Finite was we want to enable any investor that has capital mm -hmm. to access sustainable investments. And what that means is when you see a solar panel or a solar system on a roof, when you see a huge solar farm or a small solar farm, there's capital needed to finance and build that. And those investments are investments we think are appropriate for a broad and wide audience. So we wanted to make it as simple as buying a stock on Robinhood. And we thought by doing that, we didn't, we'd be able to build a large investment base that was really impactful and also gained access to very kind of traditionally private and hard to access investments. With that in mind, and you've done a little bit of this, introduce me to finite now in that dinner party way. Introduce me to finite in a way that helps me understand why this thing that you've created is going to solve that problem or in what way. Yeah. So if we zoom out a little bit, I think a lot of people and probably a lot of your listeners know there's this huge capital need for the investment needed and kind of the building needed for sustainable assets. When we look at it, there's a cohort of private funds that do really important kind of work and generally are performing very well, but they're all private funds. And that has with it kind of its own challenges and benefits. But for scale, when you're talking in the trillions, private funds can't really address, you know, a trillion dollar problem. They can't really address a hundred trillion dollar problem. So when we looked at it, we said, okay, this needs to be a public market solution. And today's public market solutions are for the most part, terrible. So a public market solution would be an ETF mm -hmm. that says, you know, ESG, just ABC, ESG ETF, so environmental, social, and governance ETF. You know, let's say it's even more specific. It's a solar ESG ETF. A decent amount of investors think that 
when they buy that ETF, they're doing something in support of solar. And the reality is they're not. They're, it's a traded product. So mm-hmm. they're just buying shares from someone else. And that's where the money is being exchanged. And so in order to you know, really fund sustainable investment, that kind of hundred plus trillion dollar problem, you need dollars to go into those investments. And so what we built was a non-traded product. It's public funds registered with the SEC. It's, a, it's called a 40 Act Fund, which is the 1940 Act that regulates mutual funds. Mm-hmm. You can buy it just like you would buy a stock. The difference is when you purchase shares, you're purchasing them from the fund. And so those dollars are coming into the fund. And then we're able to go invest them into sustainable assets, particularly solar assets. <laughs> it sounds complicated and like you're going up against a really established industry at a time when, as I understand, when you launched the business, you're basically heading into COVID. <laughs> Financial markets freeze. <laughs> Everybody goes to work from home. You've got this great business idea and you've got to build a team. Could you give me a sense uh, before we dive into like the real hard problems that you had to solve? Why you feel like nobody else has been able to try this or accomplish this before? And, you know, any pertinent accolades or, or milestones of achievement that you've gotten through thus far? Well, I'll add one other terrible timing piece that we had. We launched the company at a terrible time mm-hmm. and we launched the fund at a terrible time. 2022 has been the worst year for fixed income and elements of fixed income ever. And so... Mm-hmm. You know, with that timing, actually, we found good opportunity and that you can be fresh and not so entrenched in certain things as uh, things are going maybe a little sideways. So, you know, what we found was we needed to have a team that was strong if we're going into a very kind of traditional institutional type fund and fund pitch. We needed to have, we'll call it some extensive experience. People care about, you know, years managing money and how much money you've managed. And I think in a way COVID helped that because we weren't restricted to just hiring in Los Angeles. We were able to go abroad and we've built the company to be very accommodating for that and focus just on hiring A players versus, you know, sub A player, but local and available. So I think it's been good for us to date, but obviously there are times where I wish we were all in an office. And what are some of the milestones of success that have drawn you know, notable advisors that we'll talk about and funds like Powerhouse and the, and the folks that just uh, you know, joined you for a seed round? Give us some examples of the things that you and the team have been able to accomplish that are noteworthy. Yeah, so I think when I look back, there were some pretty key hires that at the time Felt big, but became bigger as time went on. So certainly bringing in my portfolio manager, co-portfolio manager, Dave Kretschmer, that was a huge milestone mm-hmm. looking back because he had a 30-year career managing Anthem Insurance's portfolio, which is for people that don't know, and a large health insurance company. And he was oversight for $34 billion, mm-hmm. uh, primarily in fixed income. So that brought a lot of legitimacy to our fund kind of pitch and has, I think, given our investors a really strong year of return because this isn't his first market cycle and 
it's not my first either, but it's not my 10th. So that's helped. And then building our board and building a group of investors that aren't just putting capital in, but actually bringing a lot of value. And so, you know, the one person that doesn't show up in our public filings that actually facilitated this conversation who should, should get more credit than I think he does is, you know, Graham Richard, a lot of the people that have become involved in our company are either first or second degree connections through him. So he's been really important for us. You know, we look at execution traction as our really biggest accolade collection. And then fundraising is kind of a result and core component for some of what we do. So for us, getting the fund live was huge. It was getting through the SEC process, actually having it show up as a ticker and seeing it was a pretty exciting piece and was a result of, you know, 18 months of pretty heads down work. From there, we ended up actually launching an originator, which is kind of a relatively new thing, but it was a great exercise in how fast can we spin this up and for really how efficiently. And then post launching that, closing out our seed round, which was, you know, an interesting time to raise a seed round. I think there were some positives and negatives of the timing, but ended up bringing a group together that is funding both the equity for finite and also brings with it some fund commitments and some bank relationships that will bring the total kind of capital into finite significantly higher than it is. So, you know, the equity was 3 million, but I think when all is said and done, the bank and fund commitments will be a significant multiple of that. We'll say, I Mm -hmm. I don't want to put too much of a, a specific number on it because it's still getting finalized, but I think at least a double digit multiple of that. I'm going to circle back around in a minute and talk about just the complexity and the the headache that must have been creating and taking public a fund dedicated to sustainable infrastructure and assets. But you were not always in sustainability per se. Your early career was in banking, starting out at UBS, JP Morgan. But before that, you know, you and I laughed at you were born and raised in kind of flyover country, middle America. How do you reflect on your your childhood, which may have been like like many of us, when you reflect on that childhood and the time sort of growing up between the coasts, how does it inform the guy that decided to sort of to move in to banking and to to move to the financial centers and ultimately to California? You know, what was his experience at that time in life? No, look, my my parents are the furthest thing from entrepreneurs. Mm. I think they'd view that as a compliment as they come. I mean, my um, dad's a lawyer, my mom's a nurse. They've been employed by the same people for the same companies for like 30 years. So very committed, very stable, uh, which is in hindsight, probably what gave me the, uh, you know, ignorance or whatever you want to call it to think that starting a company was going to be a, a enjoyable experience, which it has been, but it's got a lot of <laughs> challenges that, you know, I think people that grow up with really entrepreneurial parents maybe have eyes a little bit more wide open. And I came at it maybe fresher, or more naive. But no, I mean, growing up in St. Louis, Missouri, I pretty much wanted to be a professional baseball player. Mm. And then, uh, you know, probably first base or pitcher. Uh-huh. I grew up in the era of Mark McGuire oh, yeah. before he got, you know, busted for yeah. all the steroids. So 
yeah, I, you know, that was like definitely going to happen. And then it pretty much went from that to, I want to go work on Wall Street. I bought my first stock when I was in third grade and I had the benefit of calling up my grandparents' broker and, you know, placing a $500 stock purchase for which I was charged $50 of a transaction fee from that broker. Once I kind of started doing that, I got pretty hooked in finance and it was from there, I just beelined to how do I get into the industry, which at 11, the industry is finance and you don't really even know what it means, but evolved over time. Yeah. It was a natural evolution for you to get in to banking. You know, that's where you uh, ended up in uh, on the West Coast at JP Morgan. Can you talk a bit about when it started to become apparent to you that the clean energy sector, renewables, solar was a thing? And, and when you began to realize like this might be a direction that I'm headed or how that catalyst happened? Well, first I'll say I, I was doing, I was at JP Morgan in New York. And I was in the restructuring group. So thankfully at the time, there weren't any renewable companies. There were oil and gas companies, which was probably some element of my decision. Mm -hmm. But I would say I got pulled into renewables. I didn't jump in. I didn't kind of willingly walk into it. I really enjoyed banking and what I was doing, but I wanted to experience a company that was kind of growing and going up. And I wanted to be inside the company. So JP Morgan, you're, you kind of get this great intimate look at a company, but you're watching and, you know, lending money or not, but not actually operating. So a headhunter reached out and said, Hey, you know, you want to join an operating company that's growing. <laughs> all right. And uh, Eric White is to blame for all this because he was that operating company. Yeah. And I think to their credit, they were growing very fast. Eric is CEO of Dividend Finance. But, you know, at the time, we'll stick with my naivety. <laughs> Dividend was super early. I mean, they were, the solar loans were kind of just starting. Yeah. For context, this is circa 2015. Yeah. You know, Dividend had an SPV they were lending out of, and mm -hmm. the team was super smart and good, but very small <laughs> and mm -hmm. kind of like, is this going to work? So, I met with Eric in New York and he convinced me to fly out to San Francisco and meet the team, which was my first time in California. No way. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I was uh, at the dividend offices, which are in the, they used to be in the Marina, which is credit to Eric, like talk about a way to close a, a guy who's just gotten through the winter in New York. The Marina for those not listening is a, is a neighborhood in San Francisco. <laughs> I would say one of the, you know, more beautiful. It's right on the water and it's, yeah. it's great. So anyway, went out there for the day, met the team, liked it, flew back. And, um, I think two or three weeks later, you know, joined the company. Mm. What was your first revelation joining dividend about the way the industry was being run the way that where the, where the dyssynchronies were the disconnects the market gaps? Yeah. For me, the most exciting element when I started telling people at JP Morgan that this is what I was going to do was how negative they were on it. <laughs> so, you know, they, I would say almost unanimously people said, all right, you know, I'll talk to you in a few months when you want to come back. And that was inside the bank and outside the bank. <laughs> so, wow. but to me, to me that said, this is great because 
you know, JP Morgan is, and I think it's true most of Wall Street, but in my experience, JP Morgan is super competitive. You have incredibly smart people. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of sitting there saying, all right, this is a place that maybe no one's focusing on. And I was excited at kind of the solar lending space in particular because it just made a lot of sense. I mean, the fact that you can take out a loan, decrease your monthly spend as a household, mm-hmm. and then get this, you know, 30% ITC, kind of a hobbyist personal finance person. And I'm looking at it and saying, that's a lot of money for most people. And so I liked the economics. I liked that it wasn't a just do good thing. It was a financially good decision. And I was willing to take a bet that the asset class was at a minimum going to be interesting, at a maximum actually prove itself out, which I think for all of our benefits it has. Well, your friends back at JP Morgan weren't crazy. There are plenty of examples of people leaving the bank and coming back. Was there ever a moment where you doubted the decision yourself and thought, hmm, maybe, maybe they were right? They were right, I think, for a period. <laughs> you know, what happened a few months after I joined Dividend was the Sun Edison bankruptcy, which probably uh, a lot of people remember. Yep. Now, did anyone that I talked to predict that? No, but the market and the whole industry took a big pause. And I think, mm. you know, for Dividend in particular, it was a pause at a really pivotal point. You know, we yeah. were growing rapidly and then all of a sudden capital investors, everyone just froze. And that was not a great feeling. Yeah, the path laid out before you at a bank, at a major global investment bank. And, yeah. and now you chose the startup route. Right. And now, now I was in the thick of my decision. And so mm-hmm. we'll call it JP Morgan came full circle. And, and one of my good mentors there, I called him and I said, you know, this, you might have been kind of right. I just remember I was kind of around the corner from the office of Dividend and He's like, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this podcast, but it. I won't, I guess. He's <laughs> kind of like, you know, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Just sit in the saddle and hit singles and doubles. Yeah. And that's what I did. I, I think now looking as a founder and recognizing what Eric was going through, you know, that's all you want. He needed that support. Yeah. And I think he had that from some of the team and some of the team was maybe a little hard on him, but. I decided, and you know, my mentor was pretty good and he was a you know, 30 year veteran sales and trading guy. He was pretty quick to put it into perspective of like, if this thing goes under, you can have a job tomorrow. Like, don't stop worrying about that and just show up. And so that's what we did. Was there a moment at dividend where the idea ultimately that became finite started to germinate? Can you draw a line to that? Is that what ultimately precipitated you leaving a dividend? Yeah, I think, you know, it's, I would say a direct line, right? Mm-hmm. Eric did end up closing a pretty large round uh, with a company or the fund called LL Funds. And as part of that round, the company went through a pretty quick maturing cycle. And in that, I had a pretty good opportunity to work on purely the product, right? So before this round, everybody was answering the phones and kind of doing everything. Deck, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Post the round, you know, we started getting a little siloed and I got to work on the product, which ultimately meant building a loan product that could be securitized and could be warehoused and could be sold institutions. I think for me, recognizing all the work that the installers were doing to get these systems installed all the work we were doing to 
get them capital for the homeowner. And then finding out that, you know, there's five or 10 layers between that and the investor. And at the end of that, you know, our securitizations were massively oversubscribed. I think somewhere between, call it 10 and 15%. Eric may have said exactly what they were, but you know, there's demand for this product and you kind of sit there and say, we've got to make this more efficient because every dollar we can take out of the cost structure is a dollar more of return or a dollar more of savings for the homeowner. Both of those accelerate the adoption, you know, more than any marketing spend could do. So that's where I started saying, how can we make this more efficient? Yet finite wasn't the first thing that you did when you left dividend. There's always that that moment of wandering in the desert, or there often is, right? Talk yeah. about the period of time between leaving dividend and really deciding that you're going to lean in to the product that ultimately became the fund. Well, you're right. And initially, uh, when I kind of said there's got to be a more efficient way, I kind of assumed somebody was working on it because it, it did seem fairly obvious. So I, I kind of looked maybe a layer deeper and said, okay, what's behind residential solar? So what's kind of a year or two behind? And to me, that was small scale commercial. Wonder Capital was growing and there wasn't much appetite at Dividend to focus on that because we had a lot on our plate with residential. And so, yeah, my, my first kind of foray or period right after leaving Dividend was, can we turn commercial into what residential became? Yeah. We may end up circling back to that because I think the IRA is going to help a ton with that being possible. But what I found out was, um, no, <laughs> it was it was going to be too complex. And then, you know, you, I kind of looked at the space and said, all right, it still is not easier to invest in solar. Again, someone is probably working on it, but might as well get started and kind of having a little regret not getting started, you know right after dividend. What did you see spending the time that you spent in the commercial space, looking, you know, getting grants and working with grid on LMI and, and trying to solve hard problems through, you know, your finance acumen and learning about development. What did you learn uh, before you sort of turned back to the resi space and realized, wait, nobody's built this thing I thought was there. What did you learn about the commercial space that still made it too complex for the average solar salesperson or developer, which is different for commercial, to to be able to access capital? Yeah. What I found was there are a lot of stakeholders. Every deal has, you know, a building owner or property owner, but then they also generally have a board. So an HOA would be a good example of that. Or they're part of a, you know, housing entity where they've got an oversight board. What happens there is you have a pretty long process. And to be frank, that generally the decision makers aren't benefiting from solar. So, you know, in residential, you are, right? The homeowners usually make the decision, they benefit. And so to get the attention of someone that isn't going to benefit from this, they're not going to get a bonus for it. It's, it's mostly downside risk for them. It is really tough. Um, it takes a long time and at the end of the day works, but it's, I think a lot of people look at it and say, was it worth it? It's such a different sales cycle. I appreciate the nuance of that answer too, because you had the benefit of going in, not uh, having sort of been a salesperson in, sale in, in Resi, but observed it, not having developed solar projects, but being a fast learner and someone who is able to sort of triangulate data. 
I think this for me is the entrepreneurial gene in you. You actually did projects. A lot of folks would still be trying to do these grid alternative type projects in LMI because it's a very underserved space. We know folks in California who are serving it well, and there are only, you know, there are relatively few, but you decided, hmm, my skill set is better served in another way. So talk about how you go from a couple of sort of projects serving LMI through uh, PRI and uh, getting grants for it to one-click investment in sustainability. Yeah, I should add that the sales cycle for commercial is hard. The great gift you have as a kind of developer at the end of that is convincing a capital provider to invest in the project. And so, yeah, looking at that experience and saying, okay, there's still an opportunity to make residential more efficient. If we could take out some of the financing risk for commercial, that would accelerate projects. Uh, it wouldn't solve the whole problem, but it would accelerate projects. And so that's really where I circled back to this concept of, is there a public markets opportunity for a solar focused fund? And, you know, it's probably obvious at this point, but solar was an obvious asset class to focus on just given the recent experience. And I think in hindsight, there's probably a pretty good argument. We should have just done a private fund. And that's what most of, I think my Wall Street peers would have recommended. But it is also what ultimately, if I'm not mistaken, your industry peers did or had to sort of turn to, to survive. Yeah, that's right. So we're talking like namely Mosaic and Wonder. I'll just, the two examples. And dividend, right? I mean, dividend went and to a dividend, private that's right. <laughs> they got, yeah, basically got bought out by PE and then or like got majority invested by PE, right? Yeah. They've served a good purpose there, right? They've yeah. helped the market. But for me, there, there wasn't, the scale of that wasn't very exciting. Putting together kind of a small private fund, while it could have been somewhat impactful, I really wanted something that over a 10, 20, 30 year period could turn into something large and deploying, you know, not hundreds of millions of dollars, but ultimately billions and ideally trillions of dollars. Pardon the interruption, but I'm guessing you're listening to Suncast because you're trying to stay ahead of the trends and build your career and your company in a way that aligns with what the data is saying is going to happen in the marketplace. If you're looking at the distributed generation market specifically, may I recommend that you go listen to the episode we published with Gustavo Montero, EDPR, and Michelle Davis from Woodmac, all about the trends to watch for 2023. It was just recently published on Tuesday, January 31st. Go check it out. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast, and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. HexSolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. 
look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Hey family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast, moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia, to green hydrogen, to crypto, and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus Where to Party At channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community, and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. When you reflect back on the decisions that needed to happen in order to move the ball for just an early entrepreneurship, I'm curious how you funded the early business venture itself in terms of like getting the MVP idea and then how you actually went through the process of deciding that it needed to be a publicly traded fund and this type of fund and the specific pathway that took 18 months to take it public and even still, uh, or to get it in the public markets and even still during a very trying, uh, financial time. Could you walk me through that journey a little bit? Yeah. It, in hindsight was kind of a lot. I think, you know, the, the first step I took for this and kind of generally have taken, I think is, you know, if you ask people in the industry or outside of the industry, you, you often get fairly, in my experience, which Maybe I'm asking the wrong people, but, you know, kind of canned responses. So I generally have not done that a ton. If you ask people what? You know, hey, how do I solve this financing? Or would you think about investing through a fund that's public? You know, they, they might say, well, an ETF, I'm already in ETFs or something. And so what we or what I did kind of early on with how do we develop this thing was what's our best case scenario? And I looked actually to the mortgage market, which is a huge market, and said, you know, if we can be Fannie Freddie, kind of the day one certainty, which is in the US, how most people get a mortgage, that would be super impactful to the solar space and also put us in a position of being the preferred capital provider for Mm -hmm. the industry. And I thought if we could do that, we probably would deliver, you know, at least market and probably market plus returns out of the fund. Then the question became, how do we do that? (laughs) And, you know, our biggest issue was we couldn't have an MVP that didn't require a lot of time and effort and, you know, associated capital because we had to get on file with the SEC and we had to get approved before we could really start selling the fund. We were kind of fortunate to get a good group of what I would call angel or, you know, kind of the pre-seed, pre-product investor base. And that, that funded the company from, you know, pitch deck, which would probably put most people to sleep in hindsight. It was a very traditional banker deck. (laughs) And then once we got on file and started to get some traction. What does that mean, got on file? So during the process, it's similar to an IPO process. You actually have to file with the SEC what you're planning to do. And then they review it. They submit questions back. You have to respond to those. At the end of it, you get a prospectus 
that's approved kind of if you're lucky or if you're willing to go through the process and all the iterations. So we did that. And in that pre-seed round, we were fortunate to have a few equity investors who said we would, the reason we want to invest in the equity is because we would invest in the fund. We like the idea of the fund. And so that helped with, you know, I would call it that core product market fit of saying, all right, if a few family offices are interested, that's enough for me to say, we can probably get a few more. And so that helped a bit. How did you decide who you, you were going to start this with and who you needed on the team, both core team members, as well as the broader spectrum, because you attracted some pretty impressive advisors and even board members. How'd you decide the matrix of those people who they needed to be? And then was it your own Rolodex or theirs or a mix that got you into those family offices that helped you sort of secure that early money? For us, the focus was, I don't want to hire just solar people because over time, we don't want this to just be a solar company. And so we wanted to bring in a mix of people that could execute on solar, but also people from outside the industry and really people who could bring in a level of expertise that I think the industry can benefit from. And so we went out and hired a few tech people, which I can get into why that was required, but a nuance (laughs) required it. And then we said, okay, let's find a really good portfolio manager. And really, which is David, David Mm -hmm. was a result of joining our board. So he joined our board as an investor initially. I kind of talking with him and recognizing and appreciating that he was one, and this is probably obvious, but highly intelligent, equally kind of financially wonky. So we could have great conversations without either one of us falling asleep. And also very curious about what we were doing and had a willingness to step in and help out. And so he was fully out of Anthem and I think eager to, um, to roll up his sleeves. Yeah, exactly. Kind of keep things operating and keep things going. Mm-hmm. So we massively lucked out on timing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And this is, remember the 2020 timeframe, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I had, I had to fly to, he's in Nashville and kind of in, you know, middle of COVID and before he joined the board and then walk him through the whole company. And I really didn't want him to get involved if he didn't know fully what we were doing, what he was putting his name on and what he was going to be working on. Is this just you spending money out of your pocket convincing these people? At this point, we had closed the pre-seed round with Powerhouse and Howard and others. Got it. So you kind of think of like, how do you line up the dominoes? Yeah. What was the first domino? The first domino, I mean, we'll go back to Graham. Graham was probably the first domino. He actually was the introduction to Howard, who was the first investor, equity investor. And then initially we weren't going to fundraise at all from VCs. Howard had a relationship with Powerhouse and said, you know, let's have them take a look. They did. They took a very thoughtful look, thankfully, because as mentioned, our deck was hard to digest. And uh, so they invested. So at this point, we had that pre-seed and it was really a race against the clock of, we've got to get this thing live. You've got to have lawyers and valuation agents and audits and a lot of kind of annoying big company things had to happen at a very early stage for us. Yeah. I hate to belabor the point, but I think that for early entrepreneurs, this is so, so important. And I talk about it over 530 episodes. So I want to make sure that we really hit this. How'd you meet Graham? 
I met Graham when we were doing a DOE initiative with Grid Alternatives. Oh, so this was the period where you were kind of wandering the desert trying to figure out commercial solar before you traded Finite. That's right. How fortunate. And it makes sense because he was CEO of Advanced Energy Economy. You were networking. You're trying to figure out how to make things you know, come together. Well, and the, the key actually was Graham was the mayor of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And so he had a lot of experience working with kind of quasi-governmental entities doing really what kind of looks and feels like a PPP, which is a public-private partnership. So his letter of support was, I think, really valuable for the DOE program and getting that approved and then getting some projects done with GRID. Okay, so Cram makes intro to Howard. Howard makes intro to Powerhouse. I mentioned that we'll link to the the amazing uh, sort of article that Emily and the Powerhouse team put together when they did invest in what sounds like your pre-seed round. That's right. And then you're off to the races. You've raised this money. You take, was it 18 months to get on list, on file? I'm saying it all wrong. No, that's fine. It was, <laughs> we'll call it the filing process was yeah. about 18 months. And part of that was before we even submitted anything to the SEC, hmm. back and forth with attorneys. I mean, our prospectus, I used to know exactly how many words were in it, but you know, it's like 127 pages and some of it's stock, but a lot of it was you know, specific to our strategy, which took a long time. How did you know how much money to raise in that pre-seed to su- sufficient to take you through this period? Yeah. I mean, powerhouse, maybe our investors would be scared to hear this. We had an idea of what we needed. I think we were fortunate in that the company then and now is run super lean because if you look at our deck, we thought it was going to take a lot less time. And so we kind of, I want to say maybe even 2x what we thought and what ended up being reality. And so when you're planning, that's tough. I'm kind of, I would say generally a fiscally conservative guy. And so, you know, no one was making a huge salary. And you got no revenue coming in. Right, exactly. It's like we are only hiring exactly who we need and that's it. And so I think what's cool is that whole group of initial hires is still with the company. And, you know, they're a pretty strong founding team for Finite that, you know, all has significant equity and intimately familiar with both the build and now the operations of the company. When Powerhouse first invested, I presented at their LP annual meeting, you know, a few months after. So that was two years ago. In that meeting, part of the presentation was this ESG thing is, you know, made up of these companies. And I pulled up the slide and I showed them, you know, these are the largest five funds and these are the top 10 holdings. And in that you had ExxonMobil, Chevron, you know, everyone knows this now, right? And I think the reaction to that was, huh, I didn't realize that's what was in this. I think today everybody kind of knows like, yeah, you got to look under the hood of these things. There's a lot of stuff that can be in it. So that's changed in a big way. And then I would say, and this is maybe more boring for people, but the credit markets have changed massively. That market has gone from, you can't make money in it, which was all of COVID to now being, I would say a very exciting area of investment and an area that people are saying, yeah, those equity returns were nice, but now I actually value 
some fundamental analysis, some stability and some current income. You know, the, the panorama of what might be considered a competitive landscape is a lot of companies, too many to name here, but we can break them down into categories. I'd love to hear how you position for the investor, for our listeners, finite in terms of investor access, sustainable investing, where money could alternatively flow, if not through finite. Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at the space, there are a lot of indirect competitors, meaning other funds you can invest in if you're an institution or high net worth. And there's a lot of retail focused funds. So that's your equity ETFs. Where we sit is in a unique space in that, you know, we're the only public fund doing this right now, but it doesn't mean we don't have competition on the capital deployment side. And so our big challenge, if you will, and differentiation is going out and saying, you know, this is the way that you can invest truly sustainably. You can earn a good return. We can't guarantee returns, obviously. So I won't even get close to doing that, but, you know, a reasonable return. This isn't a concessionary investment. You know, on the other side, when we're talking to RAs or family offices, it's a great product that's simple. And I think a lot of people don't realize, I didn't realize, private funds are even if you have access to them, they can be difficult. You don't get to invest every day. You have to wait and then you commit and then you get capital draws. And so adding that layer of simplicity helps a lot. And being able to point to you know, a lot of the work that the industry's done to make this an institutional asset class helps, right? I mean, we can point to securitizations and other transactions that show these assets are historically you know, performing pretty well. Where do most people get lost when they're trying to wrap their head around the opportunity for finite and the broader category of investing that it opens up or we hope it opens up? Where do you find people scratching their heads? I think it has been most surprising to me that people don't always think of uh, lending as a really good investment. And we kind of treat all of our investors with the same messaging. We don't really dumb it down or up because what we found is just the very basic level of you can help build this thing and get a return from it. And it's everybody wins. You as an investor wins, the homeowner saving money, the installers getting a deal done. You know, this can really be broadly a win. Getting to that point with potential investors is key for us because it shows, you know, that it, one, it can grow to its capital that is needed. And then three, that we can do it in a way where everyone's happy, which generally equates to higher returns or lower defaults in our case. Could you discuss the different kind of investor? I want to make sure that anybody who's listening here who is like a solar installer or commercial project developer can understand what we mean by investor and how they can, you know, you're not a a dividend giving direct loans to homeowners. How does that money, like how does it flow through and get reinvested? I want to make sure that that's clear. Yeah. So- On two ends, you have investor and asset. So our goal is to connect that dollar with the asset as seamlessly as possible. And so our fund, which is SOLRX, has a $500 minimum. So, you know, pretty much anyone that's an investor can access it. There's not an accredited investor requirement. It's a public market fund. Yep, exactly. You can invest kind of any normal business day like you would the stock market. and then. What we're doing 
once that dollar comes in, is deploying it into the space, into the solar space. And so we do that really through three different primary channels. One, commercial lending. So that's your small scale commercial. Two, we buy some public market debt securities. So that's a loan to you know SunPower and an Armstrong. That's mainly for liquidity. And then the third is we go out and originate residential solar loans. And you're we're putting together pools of those that are in the fund. To clarify your point, we actually do now originate kind of with a, we'll call it an affiliated originator ourselves, because what we found was the existing originators were not providing assets we were super excited about. And so we just had the idea or time to <laughs> do it ourselves. Yeah. So now I have to compete with uh, with your old boss. Yeah. In a little bit. I mean, you know, they've sold the fifth. A rising third, tide. So, yeah. Well, and the other thing is, you know, do they notice if we take one of their deals? Probably not. Right. But our big piece there is we're not looking to be the behemoth originator that works with every single installer in the country. We're just talking to really high quality installers and saying, hey, we want to be your best capital source. We don't need to be your only capital source. If we're not your best, call us and tell us why, because, you know, that's where we're focused. But, you know, our VC investor powerhouse, our equity investors are not expecting that installer base to be our main metric of growth. It's really assets in the fund. And can you originate good quality loans that are uh, good for the fund and good for our bank partners? You said point in one is commercial lending. So that's kind of going back to that itch that you tried to scratch when you left dividend. Yeah. <laughs> How do you stand out in that market? Because that's a market that is woefully underserved. It is. It is also, it, it continues to amaze me that it's, we see deals that are poorly designed all the time in the commercial and small scale commercial. You know, one of the people on our team, Andrew Truitt is, he's the solar guy. I mean, he's been an installer, NAPSEP board. And so we benefit from him reviewing all that stuff. But yeah, we still see deals that shouldn't be put on paper. What I get excited about is I think with the IRA passing, you do have a market that's going to open up. I think it's going to open up in 2023 with kind of municipal, smaller municipal governments, nonprofits who really can benefit and traditionally have not been able to afford it or capture most of the benefit. And so we're pretty excited about that. But I would say on the kind of asset management side, you know, we're doing $30,000 loans to consumers. So a lot of lenders will kind of scoff at, oh, I'm not going to do a $500,000 deal. And I'm like, well, that's like 15 residential deals. So we'll do that. And on the back end, our tech can handle, I don't know how, what the max, but probably millions of residential loans. So Adding a $500,000 commercial deal doesn't scare us. You're right. There's a huge opportunity there. I'm glad you brought up tech. You mentioned <laughs> earlier that there was a reason why you hired two tech guys out of the gate. Can you expand? Four, actually. Four. <laughs> yeah, it was most of our team. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this may be a chip on my shoulder you'll expose, but you know that when we talk to potential equity investors, they don't view this tech as significantly or the traditionally they haven't as they do kind of, you know, some other clean tech, fintech companies. And what's been interesting is as we've executed on it, the 
our existing investor base has been like, huh, you should maybe think about selling that because then people would actually put a value on it. But our issue and the reason we needed tech was we wanted to offer the fund directly. So today you can come into our site, hit invest, and you can directly access the fund, buy shares and have a portal. Without leaving the site. Which I said, and that sounds so like, you know, why aren't you using U.S. Bank's portal? Mm-hmm. We did for the first month because our tech wasn't done yet. And I remember I got a call from a couple of our equity investors who were like, uh, this is this is pretty bad. And it was terrible. I mean, you couldn't yeah. do anything on it. And so this fund world is so kind of old school that you effectively have to build your own tech, which is more than just a front end GUI that looks nice. You actually have to like connect and PII and everything. And then on the on the management side, you know, we're tracking energy production of these systems. We're tracking payments every month. We're tracking, uh, we do our own servicing. So there's a lot of just cash movement and then asset level monitoring that we do that has to all be integrated and kind of talk to each other. It sounds like there's a bit of, if I agree between the lines here too, of what I've been in, what I've seen and been involved in in the past is a bit of like creating your own underwriting platform. Yeah, exactly. Or a, a lot of, not really well, a bit of. <laughs> yeah. On, on one side of the, the spectrum, right? And on the other side is kind of the investor piece. And yeah, I mean, the, the underwriting platform <laughs> on Monday, I was worried that our volumes were down. I had yeah. one of our guys run a report. I said, Hey, I, we increased pricing. I think I think people stopped using us. And he sent me back the report. He said, no, we just automated a few more things. So you haven't been getting the pings of like, you know, X, Y, or Z needs a manual review. And we had, in fact, 2X our volume in that period. So it's something that's evolving, but it, you know, anyone that's done a residential deal knows like we've got to decide in seconds because the installer's in the home. And on the other end, if you're selling the loan to a bank, it can't be slop, kind of sloppy or slapped together. Like it's got to be a tight underwriting. You have to have all the documents and everything really dialed in. Do you remember a moment or a few that you'd share or, or maybe the one that was perhaps the most critical where you really, you know, we talked about the moment where you got to dividend four or five months later, you kind of regretted it. You reached out to your mentor and he encouraged you to keep going. When was that moment for you at Finite? Perhaps what I'm asking is not necessarily when you thought you'd fold up shop and go home. But every entrepreneurial venture runs into dead ends and you have to pivot or you have to put on the back burner something that you thought was the front runner idea. And oftentimes those decisions are like, you know, late sleepless nights. They are conversations with friends and mentors and it all forms a decision matrix that you have to make. And ultimately you as the, probably you specifically as the founder CEO have to make the decision but it needs to be an informed one. And you worry that it's the wrong one. You worry that you're wasting another year of your life when you should go back and get a job. Those are the moments that are the crucible. Yeah. And we've had our fair share of those. So, you know, I think a couple that stick out, one, just taking on outside capital. I mean, for, for me, and I would say my personal relationship with money is it's really important. People matters. And returning to our investors a good, whether it's a five, 10 year, 20 year return, but a good return over time. That was something that definitely gave me pause. I think once we raised the capital, looking at our execution and then saying, 
okay, I mean, we had an investor that we had just launched the fund and we had gotten through a ton of kind of, you know, is this going to pull together? Is it going to pull together? And then we had an investor, US Bank wanted to manage the phones. Okay. So this was, they were like answering customer calls, which I was like terrified about. I'm like, it's our customer. We want to handle that. And they're like, no, no, we're wall staff. We had an investor who at the time was a pretty big investor and they're putting in like a hundred thousand dollars into the fund. Mm -hmm. And US Bank said, oh no, we don't work with that fund. (laughs) And they called me up and said, you know, I just tried to invest. Like, what is this? Why is US Bank telling me that they don't serve the fund? We've had probably 20 of those experiences with US Bank. And I would say every time I kind of put my head down and say, what, like, how can this be easier? Because I'm trying to solve this problem. And I didn't realize that like that was such a problem, but those were all kind of small and you get through them. I think our biggest in hindsight decision over the last year was doing the originator. We brought in kind of outside capital to help build that new partners that we hadn't worked with before and hadn't worked with before and didn't really know that well. And I remember talking with, you know, David and Ted, who's, those are our two board members, Ted White and Dave Kretschmer. And there there was a lot of skepticism. It was kind of, is this a distraction? Why are we doing this? Is it really kind of core? Should we be taking the risk? And I think today we would all unanimously say that was a great decision for the fund, the company, the partners are great. And the originator has been doing great over the last few months. Yeah. Like you needed another business to build. Well, right. So I think we could do a whole other episode about like the, or maybe a mini episode of Tactical Tuesday on the decisions now as the fund manager to stand up that business and who you choose for leadership and how you run it. Is it running separately as a, as its own entity? Yeah. It's funny you you say it that way, because one of the things when we were doing it, it kind of gave reference to like, you know, I'm not Elon Musk. I'm not Jack Dorsey. This concept of like founders can run multiple companies is great when you have a huge company and billions of dollars. But like, you know, I still have to process invoices, right? So the idea of doing it for two companies. But yeah, the originator is totally operating by itself. I do straddle. So I, I kind of work on both the fund and the originator, but it has its own dedicated team. And if the fund didn't exist, the originator would keep going. It kind of has its own banking partnerships and vice versa. If the originator didn't exist, the fund would. But together, they're kind of a killer combo because we can really get great assets into the fund. But also when we're talking to potential capital providers just for the originator, we're able to say, look, we are buying this stuff too. We're not just offloading the whole thing to you. Like We are only originating assets that we want to buy. And so that's valuable. Yeah. How do you get comfortable with the buyers that you just mentioned not feeling the way that you felt about the existing originators in the market, meaning that you were potentially getting the crumbs left over from when they selected the good product? We can actually tell if they're if we're a first or second look product. So that helps. But I think what we found with our existing bank partners is we're not the first originator they've tried to work with. Mm-hmm. And so they usually come in with pretty good knowledge. And they kind of are very attracted to the fact that if you just think of why we started the originator, right? A lot of times that lines up with why these banks either haven't worked with originators or keep looking for a different one, right? It's 
credit underwriting matters during COVID. I think some people forgot mm-hmm. that. And <laughs> we're able to very clearly walk through, I think, a pretty fundamental and arguably too conservative, but very conservative underwriting process that people like and appreciate. And, you know, if, if we tell a bank, we're only going to give you half of what you want because we're going to have a tighter box, it's they actually usually get pretty excited about that versus the other way around. And there's a bunch of stuff that, that we could talk about. I'm going to hit you with a couple of quick questions that hopefully can uh, folks can have as takeaways. I'm wondering, as we as we wrap up here, how do you sharpen the saw? Specifically, where do you go for information about the industry, newsletters, journals, podcasts, things like that? How do you stay ahead of your peers? I mean, I just listen to you, Nico. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) other than that um one of your questions was about books i'm not a book guy really i listen to podcast or um audiobooks Mm because i usually fall asleep when i read a book but i read 10ks i mean i'm whether it's a securitization report 10k annual report like pretty much my whole life that's been most of my you know the words that i've read on paper and I found that's actually a pretty interesting way to stay ahead of most people in an industry because you know, every quarter you get a pretty detailed look into companies and what they're challenged by. And I do that both on the kind of solar level, but then also on a macro level with, you know, Apple and, you know, Ford and Amazon and kind of seeing where they're headed. That's really insightful. And I remember the first time I met a peer who that was their answer effectively. And this was before I started the podcast. <laughs> Before I started the podcast, and they said, "Well, it's right there. Haven't you read Solar Cities 10K?" <laughs> exactly. And I was like, "What's right there?" No joke. And this yeah. guy, if he's listening, will know exactly who I'm. When that moment <laughs> happened, he goes, "We ripped off Solar Cities PPA for a different market outside of the United States because it's real. It's literally yeah. right there yeah. in their public documents." And my mind was blown. I was like, "Wait a minute." Yeah. <laughs> It's crazy. I mean, it, it's, you can, I mean, that's a great life hack right there for an entrepreneur yeah. in, you know, the, uh, a third world country to say, I need a PPA. Oh, that's right. Solar city went public. <laughs> even, I mean, it's crazy. Even just like employee contracts are a lot of the times published. Like you can, it's not that you're like copying or ripping them off. You can just learn a lot of, Oh, this is how they dealt with <laughs> totally. you know, key hire vesting or leaving. Employee so, contracts are published. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. So there's a lot there. It's all uh sec, uh, gov is a incredible little database, but, um, but yeah, that's probably one place that I, I go that I find a lot of people don't and can learn a lot on. I just wrote sec.gov as a treasure, <laughs> treasure trove of knowledge. <laughs> That's a, that's a little, that's a little gem from this interview. Do you have any particular routines or rituals that inform how you go about your day or week? I have a dog that wakes me up at 6am every morning. She's a Bernie's mountain dog and gets hungry. So I'm on a pretty early wake up cycle. What time does that require you to go to bed? Well, that's the problem. It, (laughs) it doesn't matter what time I or the dog go to bed. She is growling at 6am for breakfast. So it is a good moderator for me, but it doesn't necessarily Mm -hmm. mean I, I go to bed early or early enough. And then, you know, for me, running is a getting kind of a 30 minute run in. If you asked anyone that works with me, most of those runs end with either an email or in the middle, I end up calling someone to kind of talk through stuff. Is it every day? 
probably three to four days a week. And it's just a good, for me, kind of, that's my, we'll call it maybe meditation or way to yeah. get clarity of thought. So that's good. I totally get it, man. I did the same thing, uh, not this morning, but yesterday morning. Nice. I'll tell you a fun hack. Um, and this is for anybody listening that like us is addicted to running, but also can't stop your brain. Maybe you're listening to a podcast. There's an app that lots of people use now. I've been using it for five years because I heard this um, from, uh, from a mentor in a mastermind group or something. These apps like Temi and, and Otter, in particular, otter.ai, you can download it to your phone. For, most, for the most part, it's free. I will have, because I've got headphones on, the Otter app will only respond to my voice being used, right? So I can have it literally like recording my run. And if an idea comes, I'll just speak like, oh, I need to remember to do X, Y, Z, or like I'll pause the audio in the podcast. And it is a transcript of my run. This is great. <laughs> this right? is, I've not heard of this, but um, yeah. yeah, this is a great so, idea. So I'll usually open it on my, I'm an Android user, but I'll open it on my phone. And like, even if I don't have it going, I can quickly stop, open the app, press record, say a memo, go back. Like iPhone users would use notes and that's fine. Um, the point is like having a way to capture this information and it often comes and runs the way people talk about having great ideas in the shower. Like for runners, it usually happens, you know, at a, at a moment in the run where you kind of get in the flow. So another good reason to run folks. This is <laughs> a great takeaway from this podcast for me. Awesome. <laughs> well, where can people that would, would feel so compelled best engage with you? How do you like to be found? I'm a relatively new Twitter user. But I, okay. I have found that I love Twitter. I did banking, so I'm pretty quick on the email responses. But yeah, Twitter, well, feel free to drop both of those here and we'll put them in our show notes as well. What's your handle on Twitter? Finite Kevin, F-I-N-I-T-E Kevin. Easy to remember. Yeah. Finite Kevin. And, uh, and do you want to give your email here or? Oh, sure. It's Kevin at finite.io. And I would just say that on both sides, if you're an installer looking for capital, we're actively blending in the space. If you're an investor and want to learn more about the fund, you know, that's open and available, but we can also, I'm always happy to talk to people ahead of investing and walk them through what's involved in it. And I'll note for our own benefit so that we can know that you heard it first on Suncast, please let Kevin and his team know that you heard it here on Suncast. Kevin, let's end today with what we might call a bold prediction, but this is really a, uh, a bold observation. What do you believe is the linchpin problem that we will need to solve and that we will in fact solve to get us to decarbonize grid by 2050. What's in your crystal ball? It's going to sound very obvious at the end of this podcast, but we have to have a public market solution to deploy capital. That's my bold prediction. It's what's needed. I think a lot of the people that can do it are talking more than they are building products like this. And I dream of the day when we get competition from you know, a huge asset manager that enters the space because there's a lot of capital that's needed. Kevin, it's been inspiring to hear your story. It, you know, reminds me as we've talked before of others who come from the space and realize there's a capital market opportunity and they bring a product forth that can offer to your everyday consumer, one click investing in an asset that we all believe needs to exist and needs to scale rapidly. Kevin Conroy is founder and CEO of Finite Corporation and co-portfolio manager for Finite's public fund, SolarX, which we've discussed at length in today's conversation. I'm really 
grateful for your generosity and your candor that uh, you brought to the conversation. And uh, I look forward to the next time we get to hang out. Thanks for having me, Nico. I appreciate you taking the time as well. All right, Solar Warriors. Well, I hope that that was a saturating and uh, rewarding experience for you. I sure learned a lot from Kevin. You know, it's fun to hear the ways that he conceptualized bringing this business to life, what he learned from his past work at Dividend and Parlayed into the current work that he is doing, solving problems in the solar industry and bringing financing to bear. What an incredible insight into how he put his board of advisors together, the competitive landscape for solar financing in particular, the different kinds of investors involved, and even down to the metrics that he as a CEO are tracking for growth. I know that you have learned, and if you would, I would appreciate if you'd share that learning with others around you in your circle of influence. It helps pay it forward, and it shares Suncast with others as well, which I truly, truly appreciate. If you're eager to keep learning, and I suspect that you are, you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources that we mentioned in this episode and all of the other discussions that we've had, along with book links, social media, and more at mysuncast.com. Just click on the episodes tab. Pro tip, if you are looking for this episode specifically and you're struggling to find it because it's now in the back catalog, you can just scroll to the very bottom of the homepage and click the search bar, and that will allow you to search for anything in the Suncast catalog. And if instead you've been searching for a community of individuals who can help propel you forward in your career, business, and interests, well, look no further than Resource Labs, our purpose-built family of solar warriors and climate champions. You can learn more at mysuncast.com forward slash community. That link, by the way, is right at the top of the page. Next week, we'll take a look at how one developer in the Northeast United States has become the go-to solar expert for the dairy industry, developing a huge portfolio of clients and goodwill in the process. We'll also look at how that developer, Bill Jordan, and his wife started Let's Share the Sun Foundation as a way to give back and pay it forward and how you might be able to participate alongside them. Thanks once again to our devoted sponsors who help make this content free to you so that you can learn more about how the solar industry works without having to take your wallet out at all. You can go learn about them and their offers at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. And that's also how you can learn ways to partner with us to share your message and reach thousands of solar warriors twice a week, just like they do. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>